For those that are new, just want to say a massive welcome to you. It is great to have you with us. Just want to bring you up to speed quickly with where we're at. We've been going through a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we've called it the good, the bad, and the ugly. So just for some context, the... Corinthian church or the church in Corinth was a first century AD church. They're a new church, a fledgling church, and they were going through some really tough stuff. There was some good stuff going on, there was some bad stuff going on, and there was some really ugly stuff. And so for the past six chapters, Paul has been absolutely rebuking the Corinthians, left, right, and center. Today it's a little bit different because there's some good that we get to focus on. Not in that what he's sharing with them isn't difficult, because you'll see just now that it's a quite difficult subjects and topics to talk about. But Paul's tone is a little bit different in these verses. He's not just outright rebuking them. And it's because we've come to a part in the book where he's responding to some questions that they have. So it's almost like we're in the room with Paul, and he's on a phone call with the Corinthians, and he's written a letter to them, and he's absolutely sorting them out. But then they write back to him and they say, but listen, we've got some questions. We've got some questions and we'd like you to answer. And we don't actually have what they wrote to him. We don't have their letter. But what we do have is Paul's response. And so it's like sitting in the room, like I said, with somebody on the phone call to somebody else. And you can sort of pretty much accurately assume what the questions are based on the person's answer. And so they're asking Paul some really significant deep questions And he's giving them the answer. And so it's almost like a bit of a loving tone, a caring tone. It's almost like he takes a step back and he goes, okay, these are some good questions. Now's not the time to rebuke. Now's the time to really bring direction and to give a God perspective on these things that they're asking. And before we get into that, I just want to say some of these questions might hit you straight between the eyes. They might be a bit jarring and a bit abrasive and take you by surprise. You go like, why on earth? Would they ask questions like that? It might be quite weird to think about Christians asking this, this, these type of questions. But we have to understand the questions in their context. So for you and I, we're living on this side of the cross. We have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. Church has pretty much been well established. For the Corinthians, you need to know this. They were living in a broken, debaucherous society. Sexual immorality was rife. It was horrendous. In fact, Worship was considered going to the temple and sleeping with temple prostitutes. People were married to many different spouses. Divorce was everywhere. The culture was absolutely broken. And so, and so when these guys were getting saved, when the people in Corinth were getting saved, they were coming to church. And you need to understand that they were absolutely unchurched. Absolutely unchurched. And so they were coming from a context where, you know, they had five wives, or they would go regularly to the temple to sleep with the prostitutes, or they would do this, or they would do that, and be getting drunk and partying. And so they come to know Jesus, and they want to know from Paul, what's okay now? It was different, maybe, say, from the church in Jerusalem, where many Jewish people were getting saved. And so the church in Jerusalem was made up primarily of Jewish converts, people who had moved from Judaism, had accepted Jesus as Messiah, and were now following Jesus. And so they had a shared moral compass. Right? So they had, they had a sense of morality that was shared. They had an inherent sort of identity as God's people. And so when you came into the church in Jerusalem, you came into a church that had a very strong sense of morality and what was right and what was wrong. And they were guided by the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Jewish people shared that. And you would have been immersed into that straight away if you were a Gentile believer joining the church in Jerusalem. But the church in Corinth was made up of a diverse range of people. And really, the moral compass for them in that time was culture. 
culture was a moral compass. And so you had all sorts of different perspectives about things and the way life should happen. And so we're going to get straight into the first question, right? They write to Paul, and it's a bit jarring, but they go, Paul, can Christians have sex? And if so, what's the correct context for that? And so he answers them. Verse 1, chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So that's how we know they wrote to him and asking these questions. And then he quotes them. So this isn't a statement from Paul. The inverted commas are there because Paul's like, hey, this is what you've said about these matters. First one. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So what's this question that they're asking him is, Paul, we've got saved. Sex is so rampant in our society. We see it as a very bad thing. Now that we've become Christians, can Christians have sex? And the reason why they got here was because they were going like we tend to do as humans from one side of the scale to the other, from one extreme to the next. Was well, this is so bad. We've heard it so bad. You've been rebuking us left, right, and center from chapter one all the way through to chapter six. In fact, chapter six specifically focused on sexual immorality. Now we're married. We're, we're having this. Should we just not? And so there were guys on this side of the scale, and Brad spoke about this last week, that had completely divorced their physical life from their spiritual life. And they're like, no, we can continue to do this because we've been saved spiritually. What we do in the physical has got nothing to do with our spiritual reality. And then you had other guys on the other side of the scale going, no, it is so bad, it's all interlinked, we mustn't even touch sex. All right, let's ask Paul. So they write to Paul and they say, is it good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? And Paul's response is, yes. Praise God. Right? Yes, of course Christians can have sex. Yes, of course it's a good thing. But let me just say this to you. It's also good to be single. Celibacy is a good thing. Singleness is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. And by the way, so is marriage. And that's why he goes on to say this in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own Husband. Paul says it's okay to be celibate. It's okay to be single. In fact, those two go together. If you're not going to get married, that's okay. And he's going to dig a little bit deeper into that now and speak about the beauty of that. And he's going to say, but if you choose to stay single, then you need to be celibate. Let me just speak into the culture of your time and just say to you, it's not okay for you to carry on doing what you have been doing outside of marriage. Sex is a good thing. But the context is marriage. By the way, You need to have one wife, one husband, and that's the context. Celibacy and singleness, marriage and sex. He says, that's the only place that it happens. I heard one person say, he's like, if God ever gives me the gift of celibacy, he's going to pray for the gift of martyrdom as well. (laughs) In fact, Paul saying to them, according to God's word, marriage is between a man and a woman. And that is the proper context for a healthy sexual relationship. It's not what you guys have had. It's not what you guys have been living out most of your life, Corinthians. It's a good question. And I can see how you want to go to the other extreme. Because you've been living the other side. But it's not healthy in marriage to not be experiencing intimacy. It is healthy to be celibate if you're not married. Because marriage is the context for it. So he says to the Corinthians. So for the Corinthians, you understand this question was significant because if they wanted to fulfill a sexual desire, they just went around and found somebody who was keen to do that with them, fulfilled that carnal need, and they were done. 
But Paul tells him that God has designed sex. This thing that you're talking about, this thing that the enemy has destroyed and twisted and really mutilated is actually God's design. It's actually his idea. It's actually a good thing. And there is a place that God wants you to experience it. And when you're experiencing it there, there are levels of fulfillment and satisfaction and freedom and power that you can experience when you do it God's way that you will never experience outside of marriage. And as a youth pastor, I just want to say this to you. So many of our young people grow up believing in Jesus and that all the things of the kingdom of good, of, of the kingdom are good except for sex. Because we're too afraid to talk about that. Do me a favor and reiterate Paul's words here and go, yes, sex is great, but it has its context. Because there's a mind shift that happens in the life of a young believer when they get married. They've spent their whole life being told, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And then they get married and all of a sudden they struggle with intimacy in their marriage. Because you've taught them something's bad and now they've got to experience something which actually is very good. So Paul's saying to the Corinthians, sex is so good. Yes, of course Christians can. But let me tell you what's different. Your culture says it can happen outside of marriage and with a whole bunch of different people. I'm telling you it is fantastic and the way that you need to experience that is within marriage. A marriage is between a man and a woman. It's not possible outside of the context of marriage. Now, I just want to make something clear quickly. Paul is not saying that the primary reason for marriage is physical intimacy. That's not what he's saying. You must remember the context. They're asking the question in light of what's going on in their culture. There's so much more to marriage than this. And if Paul had more time, he would explain to them. And he does go into a little bit more detail that perhaps they didn't ask for here. But he's saying to him, look, you have these urges. You have these needs. You need to stay celibate right? if you're not married. If you want to fulfill these desires, it's a natural desire, but then you need to get married because that's the only context for it. But then he takes it a little bit further. And what he does is he starts to put some healthy restrictions on what would have been considered normal in those days. And he unpacks a little bit more and he takes it deeper because it was a very carnal need that was being fulfilled. And there was not real depth to what they were doing. It was just debaucherous. And so then he writes this after he said, right, it needs to happen within marriage. He says, the husband... Verse 3, should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And at that point, the Corinthian men are going, yes, amen. But then he says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So what's Paul doing here? He's speaking to a culture where men dominated And they were able to just say, I want this now, and you have to give it to me. And there was oppression and a whole bunch of, like I said, sexual morality and debauchery. And so he's leveling the playing fields. And he's saying sex is not just about a physical need being met. Sex is about so much more than that. And by the way, when you get married, you belong to your spouse. Wives, you don't own your bodies. Husbands, you don't own your bodies. You've given yourself to your spouse. And so you owe each other. There's this concrete command. There's this obligation that you have towards your spouse to meet their needs physically. Wives, you're not the gatekeepers to sex within your marriage. Culture might say that, but you're not the gatekeeper. You don't get to use that as a manipulation tool. And men, you don't just get to demand that. There is... An obligation you have towards mutual respect when it comes to this thing. Because sex is so powerful. It can be incredibly, incredibly beautiful, but so dangerous as well. So Paul says, you don't own yourself. 
Your spouse does. And guys, by the way, this word or this phrase, conjugal rights, implies more than just the physical act of sex. When Paul uses the term conjugal rights, what he's actually speaking about is that you give to your wife everything she needs, emotional warmth. It means you are romantic and you romance her. It means you cherish her, you nourish her, you care for her, and you look after her. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you've asked this question about sex. Do you just refer to the physical act? I want you to know that God has designed this thing to be so much deeper than just the physical act. And that exists for both of you. If you think that as men we're not emotional and that the mind doesn't play a part in that, that it's all physical and all visual, you're wrong. So Paul says, honor one another with this beautiful thing. That's why he says this in verse 5. Stop the way that you're behaving. Don't deprive one another. Don't think because of the culture you're in, because sex is so bad and so misused, that now you must stop sleeping with one another. Yes, outside of marriage it's dangerous, but it's still a beautiful thing. To have sex outside of marriage is bad. The sex is not bad. The context is, if you are not with your spouse in marriage physically, that's a bad thing. So Paul says, stop. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Why? So that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul's concern is mutual respect. It's an experiencing of something that God has created and designed that is so beautiful for the context of marriage. He says, don't use it as a bargaining tool. Don't use this thing as a way to manipulate your spouse or to assert yourself or to dominate them. And don't whittle it down and make it just about the physical act. It's about so much more. In fact, this thing is so deep and so beautiful for you in marriage. And don't withhold it from each other because it becomes very dangerous when you do that. You're speaking about being unfaithful to your spouse. We might not like to think about that like that, but physical intimacy is a safe way to guard your marriage against affairs. Physical intimacy is a great way of bonding you together and knitting you together emotionally and spiritually if you do it the right way. You see it as more than just a physical act, but as a spiritual, mental, and emotional one as well. Physical intimacy must be seen in the way that God wants us to see it. Only you can please your spouse the way that you are rightfully called to do. And that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians, and he speaks it into our culture as well. And they're like, okay, great, Paul, that's fantastic, but now what about singleness? We understand that sex... And marriage go together. But what about singleness? Is that okay? I'm single. I've become a Christian. Should I get married? As what Paul says. Now as a concession, not as a command. I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God. One kind and one of another. When he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, he's referring to singleness. We're saying, I really wish that you were single. In other words, church, singleness is not a curse. Singleness is a blessing. But we live in a culture that expects people to get married. And so you got teenagers and young adults, young adults particularly, who are struggling with emotional stress because the expectation is so heavy on them that they get married. Singleness is a beautiful gift. Biblically speaking, it's a massive gift. But we have this expectation that we get married because marriage is a good thing. Paul's saying, look, your salvation should not change your status, single or married. If you're single, it's a beautiful thing. In fact, I wish all of you were like that. And here's why. 
Because singleness means undiluted devotional time and commitment to God. You also see within marriage, I don't know if this has happened to you when you got married. People expect you to get married. They don't expect you to stay single. If you stay single, it's almost as if there's an implication that something's wrong with you. And then you get married and family come and they're like, right, when's grandkids coming? Right? There's this expectation that you have to keep building and adding to your life and singleness seems to be detrimental. But Paul says it's a beautiful thing and he has why? Because it means undiluted commitment and devotion to the Lord. He explains it like this later on in the passage from verse 32. He says, The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So here's what it looks like. Your single friend phones you up and he says, Hey, do you want to come with me? We, I'm going to go walk the streets downtown, Long Street, or we're going to go to Musenberg and we're going to evangelize. And we're going to share the word, we're going to preach the word, and you go, oh man, it's Father's Day. There, there is a good lunch waiting for me. And I need to be with my wife and I need to be with my children. I was working all week. I've preached three services on a Sunday. There's no ways I'm going. I'm sorry, I just can't. Or, hey man, I don't know if you can join me at the sports club. There's some guys who really need prayer. I've been ministering to them. I don't know if you can make it. No, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm at home. It's family time now. Or I need to put the kids to bed. Or I need to pick up kids from school. Or my wife's sick. Or on and on and on and on and on. It's not to say marriage is bad. It's not to say that having children is bad. But it's to say marriage is a high calling. Parenting is a high calling. But singleness is an even higher calling. And so that's what Paul says to the Corinthians. Don't just go and get married. If you're going to have sex, get married. But it's deeper than what you think it is. But if you can stay single, stay single because it's about the kingdom of God. And you can be more effective for the kingdom. Don't feel guilty either way. Celebrate it. Marriage is a gift. Parenthood is a gift. Celibacy is a gift. So called to be single, awesome. You're called to be married and have children, fantastic. You're called to be married without children, fantastic. So he sorts that out for them. And they're like, great, Paul. Another question for you. Can Christians get divorced? And Paul, we've been married. We've come to know Jesus. It seems like you're saying singleness is a higher calling. Should we get divorced now? Like in our day, in Corinth, marriages are an absolute disaster. They're an absolute wreck. It's an interesting question that they even ask Paul because to get divorced in those days, all you had to do was just declare yourself divorced. No paperwork. No going down to the courts. It was just, I'm divorced. Finished. And so they're asking Paul this because they realize something somewhere has gone wrong. Marriages were falling apart. In fact, they'd been reduced to a joke. And so the Corinthians want to know, what is the Christian belief, Paul, about divorce and marriage? And he says this to them in verse 10. To the married I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. In other words, Jesus has spoken into this. And he's saying, I'm just going to reiterate his words and paraphrase them for you. But this is what the Christian believes about marriage. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul says to the Corinthian church, the Christian view of marriage is permanence. God takes your vow seriously when you stand before him and you covenant before him and your spouse 
and family and friends when you say, for better or for worse, until death do us part. If one spouse leaves, Paul says, if the one spouse leaves the other, neither of them can consider themselves unmarried. Reconciliation should be pursued at all costs and is the highest priority amongst believers. Remember, Paul is speaking to two married believers here. He's going to deal with guys who are outside of that category just now. We've got to ask ourselves the question, why? Why is Paul so emphatic about this? Why is this such a big thing? The answer, well, we find that in Genesis chapter 2. We've got to go all the way back to creation. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates man. He creates Adam. He's created all the other animals. And he takes the animals and he parades them in front of Adam. One after the other. And Adam is given the blessing and responsibility of naming each animal. And he names them. And I believe God has done this on purpose. Because he knows. It's not like God was taken aback and surprised when Adam at the end of the line, when the last animal came, maybe it was a pig. I don't know. right? And Adam's like, pig. I'm still lonely. There's a sigh. Is this it, Lord? Surely there's more. I don't think God, when he said, oh, it's not good for man to be alone, is like, oh, shucks, like I really did hack here. I made a mistake. Maybe we should do something about this. I think God did it deliberately to parade before Adam every single animal so that Adam could, at the end of the day, come to the conclusion himself. Nothing that you have shown me is good enough for me. So God's like, you're right. Let me put you to sleep. God puts him to sleep, opens up his flesh, takes out a rib, fashions woman. And then he wakes Adam up. And it's like, you know when you wake up from a good dream, you want to go back to sleep? Adam's dreaming, wakes up, and it's better than what he could have been dreaming about. And God brings Eve, woman, before him, and he's absolutely awestruck. He is speechless, gobsmacked. So much so that he's just naming all the animals before. Now he breaks out into poetry. And he's like, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. This is woman. And finally, Adam finds someone who he can relate to, who is his partner. She takes his breath away. And then it goes on in the chapter to say, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's something deeply significant about marriage and the intimacy in marriage that bonds us together in a way that we, in a sense, become one person. And this is why God hates divorce. It's a breaking apart of his original design. It's a ripping and a tearing of the fabric of this one person. Where you'll never completely be who you were before. Because it was a bonding together and a fusing together of two people. It's a breaking of a covenant promise that you made before the Lord and each other. Not a contract. See, we often think of marriage as a contract because we're told to sign Antinatural contracts or this contract or that kind of weave what the time and made it contractual. It's a covenant. In other words, it's got nothing to do with what you do for me, but everything I promise to do for you, regardless of what you did for me, because I love God. And this is his idea. It's a breaking apart of that image of God that can't be seen outside of marriage. You see, man is made in the image of God, woman is made in the image of God, but there's something that happens when we come together and you get a fuller picture of the image of God when man and woman are together in marriage. And when you break that apart and you make it about yourself, you forget that marriage plays a role that's beyond you and your spouse and your children. Marriage plays a role for the kingdom 
in a sense, as a family, that irreducible minimum, as husband and wife, you become for the world around you what the Israelite people were supposed to be for the world around them. An example of the goodness of God and the blessing of God that comes from tight community. It's, marriage is a representation of the way God loves us and how he's bonded himself to us. And God says, despite your faithlessness, I will still be faithful because I've covenanted to be with you. I've made you one with me. And so God hates divorce. And the reality is, church, every single, every single marriage is on the rocks if it doesn't have Jesus at the center. Christian marriage is essentially a marriage between three people. You, your spouse, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's the epicenter, so he brings you together. And I must be honest, and my wife is listening online, Mandy, I love you so much. There are times where it's very difficult for me to love anybody. There are times where I wake up and I don't feel like loving. There are times where it's even difficult to love oneself. You, you, you battle with capacity to love other people. And that affects your marriage. And if you've been married, if you are married, you know marriage is not easy. But hopefully that happens far fewer times than one would hope. It happens far less than the other good stuff. But it's in those moments where things are going difficult. It's my fear of God and it's my love for the Lord that keep me going. It's my fear of God that compels me to fulfill my vow. It's my love for the Lord and my covenant promise that I made to him that compels me to do what I promised to do. I think one of the sad truths about us as people is we become complacent. We begin to take our spouses for granted. And then complacency sets in. And I think we need to force ourselves to appreciate our spouse again and to be grateful for that relationship and to look for something, even if it is microscopic, to be grateful for. You know, Jesus says, you have faith as small as a mustard seed and you can move a mountain. If you can find something, even if it's the smallest thing, to find in your spouse, if you're going through a tough time, to be grateful for, that mustard seed of faith grows, so your gratefulness for the smallest thing in your spouse's life will begin to grow. And if you water that... They may not change, but you will. And so you begin to love them. And as soon as your heart is filled with compassion and gratefulness and gratitude for them, complacency and lackluster and bitterness and resentment go out of the window. So Paul's saying, fight for your marriage because that's what pleases the Lord. You're like, okay. But Paul, what happens if my spouse is not a Christian? Question 2B. We met, we were unsaved, I got saved, they're not saved. Should we get divorced or should we stay married? And Paul says, yes, you should stay married, even if your unbelieving spouse is unbelieving. He says, here's, what he, here's what he says, this is why. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't speak directly into this, but Paul can be trusted here. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. We'll explain that in a minute. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what Paul is saying is if you were both unsaved, now you got saved and you're married to an unbeliever, stay married if they want to stay married to you. Because your relationship 
with the Lord will become a blessing to them. As you walk in the favor and the light and the life of Jesus, as he pours out his blessing onto you, so it will pour out of you and it will touch their life as well. It will touch your children as well. They will be blessed. They will inherit so much stuff from God as a result of you and it may even lead them to salvation. See, marriage is the institution that God has designed and is a beautiful thing and not even in that case should you get divorced because God honors marriage so much so. In fact, he wants to bless you to be a blessing. So stay married if they want to stay married to you. Then he says this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. What does Paul not mean here? What he doesn't mean here is that divorce is okay here. What he doesn't mean is that it's less painful. I come from two divorced parents. My parents, I was four when they were divorced. They both didn't know Jesus. Like, I think I'm still working through some of the consequences of that in my life. It was horrendous. I can still remember as a four-year-old boy having to process that stuff. And so I know this is a sensitive thing. But Paul is not saying divorce is okay and it has less consequences. The collateral damage is just as bad. What he's saying here is that the believer in this case is not bound. But there's a sense in which your obligation has been fulfilled. You as a Christian, you stay married. If they want to leave as the unbeliever, okay, you're not bound. You're not obligated. But you do everything to fight for your marriage. And he says it's important because sometimes you get into a situation where as a believer... Husband or wife, your unbelieving spouse is causing so much trouble and so much pain that it's very difficult to distinguish between the pain that they're causing and the pain that divorce would cause. And some people are compelled as Christians to not let the person go who wants to go and they think they are my only hope. I've got to hold on to this no matter how detrimental it is to me, my health, my children. I'm going to hold on to my unsaved spouse and not let them go as much as they want to go. And Paul says this to them, God has called you to live at peace. So how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? In other words, church, marriage is not a tool for evangelism. It is a context in which people can get saved, but it is not a tool with which you should try and save somebody. Let me just talk about this for a moment. And it might not hold water here or have any traction here, but at the 6 p.m. I'm sure it's going to work well. Okay. But I don't know if you've ever heard about flirting to convert. We're dating for deliverance, right? It really is not a good idea. See, what often happens, especially as Christians get older in their singleness, they begin to flirt with the idea of compromise when it comes to relationship because they've been single for so long. And so they meet someone who's really nice, really kind, treats them well, sadly sometimes, better than what a Christian would treat them. And they go, this is a nice person. I'm sure that if I dated them or even married them, I would get them to come to know Jesus. And God would use me to bring them to church and to see my family, to see my friends, and they would get saved. I bet if we started dating, they'd become a Christian. Or I bet if we got married, they would come to church. And what you don't realize is that anything that you take outside of marriage into marriage is exponentially increased, the good and the bad. It just blows it up. And Paul says this, and I would have you, church, say this to our young people, and don't let them compromise here. Do not be unevenly yoked. With unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
For the already married, Paul says, God hates divorce, so don't get divorced. If your spouse is unsaved and wants to stay married, you will bless them. They may even come to know you. So stay married. But to the Christian single, he says this, do not willingly put yourself in a place where you bind yourself together with an unbeliever, even if you are burning with desire. I've been, as a youth pastor, hauled over the coals by parents who are upset with me for telling their teenager to say goodbye to the boyfriend or girlfriend they're currently dating because that boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't know Jesus. You have no idea how angry some parents get because finally my teenager is in a relationship and it's good for them. I'm like, it might look good, but telling you now, it is going to be very bad in the long run. When you bind yourself together with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, no matter how desperate you are for a relationship, no matter how nice and kind they are, even if you share some sort of moral compass that's similar, you're binding yourself to somebody who ultimately doesn't have the same priorities as you. You're binding yourself together with somebody whose worldview ultimately is not yours. You're binding yourself together with somebody who doesn't share your full moral compass with you. You're binding yourself to somebody who's still a slave to sin, and the list goes on and on and on and on. So Paul says, Corinthians, marriage is good. Don't get divorced. If you want to get married, Christians marry Christians, not the other way around. That's what he has to say to them about that. And then I'm going to draw what I have to say to a close now. Just give me five or seven more minutes. So I'm going to zoom out a bit and look again at what Paul is saying to them. Essentially he says to them, guys, you've asked some good questions about marriage, about sex, about singleness and celibacy. But what I want you to know is that if you want to know how to fully use something to its full potential, you go to its designer or its creator. And that's essentially what Paul's been doing here. He's been saying to me, you've asked me about sex, about marriage, about singleness, about celibacy, about divorce, and all that sort of stuff. And all I've shared with you is the creator's blueprints and guidelines and instruction manual for how to use those things. So should your salvation change your marital status? No. Do you have to give up sex? Praise God. No. Unless you're not married. Do you have to give up marriage? No. Unless you feel called to be single. That's okay. But whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it His prescribed way. Not the world's way or the way culture would prescribe it to us. And he answers some other questions. They ask some questions about the external circumstances, their ethnicity. And from verse 17 to 23 to 24, this is what he says. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called them. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek to be circumcised. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant to Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. What does Paul want them to know here? He wants him to know this and he wants you to know this. When you come to know Jesus, some things will change externally, but others won't. Jesus does an internal work and things change internally, but that doesn't always mean your external circumstances will change. 
And this is so freeing and was so important for them then and so important for us now because as people we tend to put pressure on ourselves and tend to bow to the expectations of culture and society and the people around us. Now that I'm a Christian, I must be bettering myself in this way or that way or this way. And it generally tends to be physical, worldly ways we want to benefit ourselves. Paul says, if you are uncircumcised, stay uncircumcised. Don't become a Jew. Don't do what the Galatians are doing. If you are circumcised, that's fine. Don't have to go seek reconstructive surgery. Jesus has changed the inside. Don't worry about the outside. If you're a slave, you're actually free in Jesus. If you can earn your freedom, great. But don't fight this thing so that you can impress God. If you are a free man, just know that you're bound to Jesus anyway. In other words, the slave and the free man kneel before King Jesus. Don't... Stop wanting to get more power, more money, more influence, more control over others now that you're a Christian because you think you're going to have more kingdom impacts. God will give you what he wants you to have. The key to fulfillment does not lie in your external circumstances. The key to fulfillment lies in knowing that Jesus is king and that he's changed you on the inside. Your ethnicity doesn't count. Your job doesn't count. Your wealth or lack of it doesn't count. Your marital status doesn't count. All that matters is your identity as a Christian as a follower of Jesus. He says, so if you're the CEO of a company, do it for the glory of God. If you're the caretaker of that company, do it for the glory of God. If you have the opportunity to become the CEO, awesome, do it. But do it for the glory of God. But none of that stuff puts a smile on God's face. What puts a smile on God's face is that you do things His way and that in whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. He says, you've been bought at a price which you can never repay. So revel in that freedom and in that blessing. Amen. Let's pray together and I'm going to hand over to Mark. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. And I want to pray and ask just three things, Lord. That we would be a culture, a church with a culture that honors sex, that teaches our young people that it is good, that we have marriages that are full of it, that it is rich, that it is edifying and a blessing, that binds husband and wife together, that it is honored, that it is regarded as Lord, righteous and good, you would see the sanctity of it, that our marriages would be strong, that marriages would be healed, that people would come back together, that the divorce word would get out of our conversation, and the reconciliation and healing would be part of that conversation that we have with each other. Lord, I want to be a, pray that we'd be a culture, a church, that is a culture that embraces singleness and celibacy as a good thing. We encourage our young people to remain that way if God has called them that way. And we encourage our young people to look for godliness in a partner. And that, Lord, we'd be a congregation and a church and a culture that embraces who we are. It doesn't feel like we need to impress you. We don't feel like we need to impress you with anything external. Lord, may our concern be about our character and who we are spiritually more than it is about our external circumstances. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.